I'd invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to Paul's letter to the Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Just um, it strikes me again as, uh, as I come to preach, what a strange thing this is that uh, we would be here together and um, listen for 30, 35 minutes to someone talk about the Bible. Why would we do that? Uh, and uh, the Bible talks about the word by which we are being saved. Uh, that God is carrying out His saving purposes and, uh, as we open the Word together. This is, this is the power of God into salvation for those who believe. Uh, there are um, incredible spiritual realities happening um, as we open the Word together. And so let's, let's lean with expectancy into the preaching of the Word. It's a wonderful uh, gospel text this morning, Galatians chapter 3. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. We'll read through uh, from... Uh, we'll be looking at specifically uh, verses 6 through 14. But I'm going to start in chapter 1 of Galatians, uh, verse 1 of Galatians chapter 3. Let's read God's word. <clears throat> o foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations of, be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's ask the Lord to bless us. Father, we believe that this word is inspired by the Spirit of God, and we ask that Spirit now to come and teach us the things of God. Uh, we, Lord, in our unspiritual mind, could never understand these things, but, but Lord, you've given us the Spirit so that we, Lord, could, could uh, grasp the truth and the beauty and the wonder of what we have here. And so, Lord, um, teach us so that it not only um, trains our minds, but trains our hearts that our hearts are molded by the beauty of, of your love for us in Jesus and what you've done. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, um, as we read through that, it just struck me again, these are dense, this is dense theology. Uh, there's so much in this text, but um, I want you to, to trust that this morning, the, the, the core good news of the gospel uh, is presented before us, uh, because Paul here unfolds the central glory of what God has done for sinners in the death of Jesus Christ. Now, unfortunately, there is something that makes it difficult for us 
to experience the sheer glory, the, the majesty and grandeur of the gospel so that it's so that, um, so that we'll hear the, the, the gospel message in a way that does not transform us or does not fill us with joy, doesn't fill us with confidence and, and, and peace. Uh, and and we'll, we could leave here hearing the gospel and go right back into our everyday life with all the same doubts and fears and anxieties and concerns that we had coming in. If that happens, there's been a misconnect. Somehow, the, the, the gospel didn't get through. It didn't get in in some sense. You believe it, but it hasn't, it hasn't gripped our heart. And the thing that prevents that from happening, like cataracts present, prevent you from seeing well, uh, sin is a fog of unbelief that sort of grips our hearts. And, and what I want to do this morning to start with is I'd like to deal with the cataract. I'd like to, to start this morning just speaking very briefly about what sin actually is so that we get a sense of the glory of God's response to our sin in the cross of Jesus Christ. So if we ask the question, what is sin? Well, if you know your shorter catechism, you know that sin uh, is defined there as any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Now, that is an accurate description. It's but it, it, it's a very limited description. Uh, that description, if we define sin as any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God, fails to explain uh, the awfulness of sin, the, the true offense of sin. It, it would be like uh, saying that um, adultery is a transgression of the rules of marriage. And we would all say that that's true, but that doesn't really explain the awfulness of adultery. It doesn't explain the true offense of adultery. Adultery is a hateful, violent assault upon your spouse and upon your family. Sin is a violent, hateful assault on God. And, and that knowledge is critical to grasping and experiencing the glory of the gospel, which is why I believe when Paul um, is going to write the book of Romans, where he, he lays out the glory of the gospel in, in depth and detail, unlike any of his other letters. Romans is his, his, his great dissertation on the gospel, but he starts with sin, the reality of sin. And in Romans chapter one, then already explaining the awfulness of sin. That the wrath of God is being revealed against the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. And what does it mean that men are unrighteous? What does it mean that men are ungodly? What it means at its core is that men have rejected God. They suppress the truth about God. Um, and he'll repeat this over and over. Verse 21, that men did not honor God as God or give thanks to God. We're not interested in honoring God as God. It did not matter to them. In fact, they, they reject that truth and refuse to give thanks. Uh, they exchange, verse 22, the glory of the immortal God for images of created things. And they, and they bow down, they worship those things because they do not want to worship the glory of God. They reject the glory of God. Uh, they exchange the truth of God for a lie, verse 25. 
And so you see that sin is at its core intentionally and intensely anti-God. It hates God on purpose. John Piper, um, in our high school theology class this, this past week, we listened to uh, Piper talking about this, and, and, he, and, he, and he quote, here's a quote from, from that. He says, sin is any feeling or thought or speech or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God above all things. So, sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commands of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. Those are the roots. Everything else is fruit. Why do we sin? What does it mean to sin? It means that, that we have moved God to the side, to the periphery. We do not want Him. We do not, uh, we do not desire Him. Uh, we disprove of God in our mind, and we, we plow forward then to go our own way. So sin is about God. Fundamentally, it's about, about God, not just His rules. And, and the moment that you wake up to that, that we wake up to that fact, whether that happens by a convicting work of the Holy Spirit here in this life, or uh, it happens when we stand before the terrifying presence of uh, Almighty, thrice holy God, uh, before the judgment throne, right? but, but when that tr this truth that sin is about God... When, when, when the conviction happens, either by the Spirit or we stand before the presence of God, we will know this then instinctively to the marrow of our bones. That all of our sin, it's, it's, it's not just that we lacked conformity to. It's true. But we hated God, denied God, rejected God. We sinned against Him. The question then is how can someone who has so intentionally, purposefully, willfully, consistently hated God and rejected the glory of God for the things that God has made, how, how can that person who has violently assaulted the, the, the person and the character of God, how can that person ever hope to be restored to fellowship with God? Have you ever really sinned against someone? Maybe a close friend, maybe your spouse. I mean, you, you really sinned. And as the, the reality of what you actually did, and the, 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 the hate and the, the pride, the perversion, whatever it was that was involved in your sin, as that just becomes evident to you, have you ever wondered, I don't know if, if we can make this right. I don't, know, I don't know how to, how could I be reconciled here? What if they don't forgive me? I hope you've experienced that because that just means you're just dealing with the reality of the offense. Well, when we stand before God, that's the question we should ask. 
as sinners. We, we just sort of assume that, well, we sin and God forgives. That's, that's, that's a, how it works. But when you, when you grasp the offense of your sin against God, then the question that will come to your mind, well, how would it be possible that, that someone who has so intentionally hated God and so in, purposefully, willfully transgressed his good will and, and who has not feared his wrath, not cherished his grace, how could I be restored to fellowship with him? You see, that's the question that's answered by the gospel. In our text this morning, Paul then argues with impeccable logic and scriptural uh, foundations that there's one way and only one way for that to happen, but it's a glorious way and an effective way, and that is the way of justification by faith. I just have two main points this morning. First, we're going to look at Abraham's example, and then secondly, Abraham's gospel. As Paul uh, now is going to go, he's just uh, already in chapter 3, he's argued uh, um, that, that we're saved by grace uh, and by faith alone, not by works, as he just appealed to the experience of the, the, the Galatians' own conversion. How did you receive the Holy Spirit? How did that happen? Well, now he's going to argue from history, from, um, and really um, taking a page out of the Judaizers' playbook. Remember, Judaizers, they, they, these are the, the men who had come up from Jerusalem, Jewish Christians, who were teaching that Gentile Christians need to become Law of Moses people if they want to really be Jesus people. That you have to be circumcised. You have to become part of, uh, of, of what it means to be Jew in order to be part of what it means to be Christian. And um, for what does it mean to be a Jew? Well, Jews would identify themselves by two of the great patriarchs of old, Abraham, who they called Father Abraham, and Moses, the great prophet, and the law of Moses that, that, that God had given to them. And so... Um, the Jews define themselves by these two, particularly Father Abraham. And so Paul, when he's going to talk about Abraham now, he's going right to the core of their identity. Remember, the Pharisees would come to Jesus and, say, and they would say, well, um, we're, not, we're not children of the devil. Abraham's our father. We have Abraham as our father. That was their identity. That was their security. Abraham was the friend of God, and, and, uh, Ab- and God said he'd be a God to Abraham and his descendants, his children, and they are the children. And so God certainly loves them and, and uh, looks on them with favor. Well, Paul says, let's talk about Abraham. How did Abraham uh, receive the verdict of righteousness before God? How did that happen? Was it through circumcision? Well, it couldn't have been through circumcision because that hadn't been given yet. Well, how about the law of Moses? Well, it couldn't be through the law of Moses. That hadn't been given yet either. How did it happen? Well, Paul tells us, quoting Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted, reckoned, credited to him as righteousness. Boys and girls, I'm sure you remember the story where God comes to Abraham and um, Abraham's very old, almost 100 years old, and his wife is very, very old, and they don't have any children um, because God has closed the womb, and, and yet God brings Abraham, boys and girls, remember, outside if, uh, of his tent, and maybe if you've been camping and you see the stars up in the sky, you can see them so clearly uh, when you're out away from the city, and uh, just imagine what it would have been in Abraham's day. There's no light pollution, and God says, look up at the stars and count them if you can. That's how many descendants I'm going to give to you. As many as the stars in, in the heaven. That's how your offspring 
So shall your offspring be. And then we're told in, in Genesis 15, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, John Stott in his commentary says, pay attention carefully to what has happened. First, God made a promise to Abraham. And, and Stott says, indeed, the promise of descendants was placarded before Abraham's eyes, much as the promise of forgiveness through Christ crucified was placarded before the eyes of the Galatians. It's great insight. So first God makes a promise, and he placards the promise before Abraham. Every time, Abraham, you doubt, just look to the heavens. Secondly, Abraham believed God. In spite of the seeming insurmountable obstacles to Abraham and Sarah having children, Abraham decided to let God be true and every man a liar, and he believed what God said. And notice that Abraham, we're not told he believed in God. Lots of people believe in God. The devil believes in God. The, 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 the critical issue is believing God, taking God at his word, believing the promises of God. And so Stott says, despite the inherent improbability of the promise, from a human point of view, Abraham cast himself on the faithfulness of God. And that faith, casting himself on God's promise, that faith is reckoned as righteousness. God counts Abraham to be righteous, not because he is. Right? Abraham in his person, if you had met Abraham the day before and the day after, it looked like the same Abraham. And he still is going to struggle with laziness and fear and lust and envy and greed and, and, and unbelief and all the sins that we struggle with. He's still Abraham the man. But the critical point is that Abraham believed the Lord and God credited righteousness to Abraham on that account. That Abraham received the declaration once and for all of righteousness before God, not because of what he had done, not by, because of circumcision, but by faith and faith alone. And so Paul draws the inescapable conclusion, verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You know the little song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. Well, the wonder is that we actually can say, I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. <laughs> Right? If you believe, if you, if you accept the things that God has promised in truth for you, in Christ, you are a son of Abraham. And so the dividing line in human history is not as the Judaizers thought and the Jews thought, the line between Jew and Gentile. That's not the line. The line is between those who believe and those who do not believe the promises of God. The fault line, you see, is faith. Do you or do you not believe, receive what God has spoken? Receive it in truth, simply because God has said it. Do we believe Abraham's gospel? Well, what is Abraham's gospel? Well, we look at that secondly then, first of all, proclaimed, and then explained. First, uh, proclaimed, verse 8, the scripture, foreseeing God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. That would be shocking uh, news to a Jew uh, th who believed that Gentiles really are dogs. Uh, they are dirty, vile, perverse, pagans. They're idolatrous. Uh, they're not under the law of Moses. Uh, to, 
Gentile, the word Gentile is, is a synonym with wicked, um, godless. But Paul here says that Gentiles are justified. And the shocking thing is they're not justified because they clean up their act. They're justified by faith alone. They're justified simply by believing the promise of God. And, and that's, that's the scandal of, of Abraham's gospel and the scandal of, of the Christian gospel, isn't it? That, that God uh, justifies the wicked. I, I remember a, um, a cover magazine for Modern Reformation uh, magazine put out by um, Mike Horton and gang uh, way back, and they had a, a picture of Madonna on their front cover. And, uh, and the title was God Justifies the Wicked. And I think they had Madonna and then, and then um, other like, TV evangelists and things like that. Wicked people. And uh, God justifies the wicked. The wicked, people like you and me. Uh, that's exactly what Paul says, isn't it, in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. To the one who does not work, but to him who justifies the wicked, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's the gospel declared to Abraham. Uh, and and it was, it's proclaimed in this promise uh, that through you, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. Someone is going to come from Abraham who's going to bless all the nations. And Paul says that promise is given as Scripture foresees that Gentiles will be justified by faith. And so he makes the point again, verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith, a man of faith. In verse 10 and, uh, through 12, Paul again then makes this distinction between there's two ways to live or to seek life. You can seek it by the law or you can seek it by, by faith. Those who rely on the works of the law, verse 10, are under a curse. In other words, they're, they're rejected by God. They're, they're damned. Why? Well, uh, because uh, it's not enough to know the law or su subscribe to the law or even um, agree with the law. What's required on this path is to do the law, all the law, all the time, right? To do it, uh, to abide by all these things written in the book of the law, to do them. That's what's required. And because no one obviously can keep that standard, then cursed is everyone who, who, who makes that attempt because we know that no one will be justified by God before God by the law. Relying on the law is a dead end in the purest sense of the word. Uh, it will lead to death, your death, eternal death. And that means if you're doing, uh, seeking to live by the works of the law, no matter how Christian or how reformed right, that might look, if that's, your, if that's what you're relying on, dead end. But then there's the path of faith, those who live by faith. And Paul quotes from uh, Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. The guilty shall die by the law, the righteous shall live by faith. That means that the righteous will be basking in the presence and favor of the living God forever and ever by faith alone. Riken tells the story of uh, uh, Martin Luther. Uh, when Martin Luther was a monk, a, a desperate monk, trying to somehow find a way to be declared righteous, even though he knew he was sinful. And he, went to, he visited Rome as a pilgrim and uh, went to St. John Lateran, the church there. And um, the, it was said that the staircase at St. John Lateran was, uh, it was alleged to have come from the judgment hall of Pilate. So this, these would be the steps that Jesus walked. That was the story. And uh, so believing that these steps were stained with Jesus' own blood, 
pilgrims would make their way up those steps on their knees, pausing at each step to offer prayers and then and kiss the, the staircase. And so that's what Luther's doing. He's on his knees on this sacred staircase, um, hoping that by, by uh, kissing these stairs and, and, uh, and making his way up on his knees and praying, that somehow this will accrue to him as righteousness, that God will give favor to him because of this. And Luther says on his way up that staircase, suddenly uh, the words from Habakkuk come into his mind, the righteous shall live by faith. And for the first time he actually grasped what it meant. And he got up and he went back home to Wittenberg, a changed man, and Luther later recounts, before those words broke into my mind, I hated God. I was angry with him. But when by the Spirit of God I understood those words, the just shall live by faith, then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. Now the question I want to ask is, how is, the, how is that possible? Why does faith open the door to paradise in a way that works can't? And the answer is in verse 13 through 14, as Paul explains the gospel. He explains first that the gospel is, it centers around an event. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. At the center of the gospel is a, the story of Christ crucified on a cross. And everything depends on what actually happened at the cross. Uh, because Jesus is doing something there. He's accomplishing something there. And Paul says what he's doing is redeeming us from the curse of the law. If, uh, the, the word redemption in those days, if you were a Roman citizen, um, you would, you would uh, affiliate that word most likely with the slave market where people from time to time would redeem a slave, buy them, paying the purchase price, buy them out of slavery and setting them free. And that's exactly, Paul says, what Jesus accomplished at the cross. He bought us back. Well, how did that happen? What gave Jesus' death such redeeming power? And the redeeming power is found in Jesus becoming a curse for us. So that, so that the, the point of our deliverance is not just Jesus dying on the cross. The, the precise power of the gospel, the, the specific reality that sets us free from bondage to death is not just the crucifixion of Christ, but the cursing of Christ. He became a curse for us. That's the point of his death on the cross. Jesus could have died a thousand different ways. But the cross stands for curse. The cross stands for damnation. In the Old Testament, the, the, uh, if you were going to carry out capital punishment, it would be by stoning. But after you had carried out the capital punishment, you would take the body and you would hang it on a tree as evidence that, that this judgment, this verdict, doesn't just come from the elders of Israel, it comes from God himself. And that this person is damned, cursed by God. That's what it means. And so the, in the New Testament writers, they'll talk about Jesus hanging on a tree. That's, the point is, the crucifixion points to the curse. Now, I just try to imagine how difficult it is for a Jewish person to understand and believe this. The gospel. 
Because what you're telling them is that the Jewish Messiah, the one promised by God through all the prophets of the Old Testament, the one who's going to come and redeem Israel, that the Jewish, the, the Holy One of God is cursed by God. And that's just a hellish oxymoron. It's an inconceivable contradiction of concepts. It's not possible. It's offensive. It's blasphemous. That, that he should die, the Messiah, under God's condemnation as a cursed one. Stott says the fact that Jesus died hanging on a tree remained for the Jews an insurmountable obstacle to faith until they saw that the curse he bore was for them. And that's the power of those two words that Paul adds in here, for us. For us. He became a curse for us. I want you to imagine going uh, into a maximum security prison, maybe back in the, let's say, 1970s when the death penalty was still being applied and through an electric chair. And you're brought down into the bowels of the prison, into a back room, and there you see the electric chair and you see a man chained to it. And then the switch is flipped and you watch the man writhe in agony, gripped by the violence of the electric shock until finally he collapses and he's dead. You would be stunned and traumatized by that experience. And the question that would go screaming through your mind is, why? What did this man do that makes that violent death necessary and just? What, what was it so... Must, it must have been incredibly horrific and vile. For, for that awful death to be just, what did he do? And, and when we view the cross, that's exactly the question that we need to ask. So what did Jesus do to deserve that violent, cursed death? What awful crime has he committed against God that this would be a just event? And the answer, of course, is he hadn't committed any crimes. He was executed for your crimes, the awfulness of your crimes. Your violent hatred of God. Jesus then took on that curse. He was cursed for you, for your sin. The damnation that belongs to us because of our hatred of God. Our violent assault against the glory and goodness and majesty of God. All of that, all of the awfulness of that sin falls on Jesus. So that we might receive the blessing that belonged to Jesus. So Paul says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The words so that are so beautiful here. Jesus is cursed so that the blessing of the Gentiles, of the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to you and to me. And the blessing of Abraham is a blessing of righteousness by faith alone. That God has not asked you to work. He's not asked you to, to accomplish this in your power. You don't have the power. What God has done in Jesus is imputed the awfulness of your crimes against God. He's imputed that to Christ Jesus so that the glory of the righteousness of Christ could be imputed to you. That God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And the ripple effects then of, of, of that fact of the gospel expand out so that the first ripple is, is that we're justified, declared once and for all to be righteous before God. And the second then re, uh, um, 
manifestation of, of what God has done is, is that the Holy Spirit is given to us. That's what Paul says. God himself comes to dwell with us. The, the evidence that we've been justified, the evidence that God now accepts us and receives us as his beloved, the Spirit of God comes and dwells within us. And how does that happen? It happens through faith. Through faith. Through faith. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. I want you to imagine what it would feel like knowing without a shadow of a doubt that every sin you've ever committed, the vile, vilest, vilest sins are forever gone. That, that God in all of his glory and majesty and power and might, the God whom you offended so awfully and, and continue to do so, that God has reconciled you to him and that will never be changed. That he loved you so much he gave his own son for you so that you might receive the blessing of Abraham. Think of, of, of what it would feel like to live with unbounded assurance that God loves you, that God in all of his might is eternally for you. Friends, that assurance is yours for the having by faith. Do you believe the promise? Just like Baron Abraham did. Do you believe what God says? That he has placarded before you on the cross of Jesus Christ, the gospel. The fact that you, the sinner, can be declared righteous and that God will be reconciled to you forever. Do you believe the gospel? Paul says, Romans chapter 15, 13, that may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Let's believe. Believe. Take God at his word. And when your conscience accuses you, take God at his word. And when the devil accuses you, take God at his word. And when your flesh rises up against you again and you stumble and fall again, take God at his word. Believe the gospel and watch it transform your life. Amen. Oh, Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Oh, I thank you so much for Jesus, the Son of God who knew all the horror and, and perverse reality of our sin, for we had sinned against him. And yet he willingly came and bore our sin and became a curse for us so that the curse might be answered that the guilt might be atoned for, the penalty paid, and we could be redeemed and reconciled to God and recipients of all of his grace and love and favor for all the rest of our life and for all of eternity so that no, nothing that happens to us can be judged to be judgment. It might be discipline. It might be chastisement. It might just be your way of helping us to grow, but it's never judgment. It's never anger. It's not wrath. It's love. And it's full of grace. And we're invited to experience peace as we believe the gospel. And so, Lord, I pray this gospel would make us different kinds of people. That we'd be able to put our fears and worries and anxieties aside. 
and that believing the gospel, we would be willing to patiently wait like Abraham and Sarah waited for the promise to come true. We'd be willing to wait until you make everything new. But we would live with joy and we would live with peace in believing the gospel. And we'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.